HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, Chase, we are uh, ready for episode 9 and uh, pressing on into Acts chapter 11 this week and looking forward to that. Um, we're going to have some review as we get started this week, and um, I'm excited to uh, see what goes on. This is uh, one of my favorite examples of a church in the New Testament. The church at Antioch doesn't get a lot of uh, airtime in that there's not like a, a letter to the Antiochians, or I don't know what you'd call them. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Antiochians, maybe. But yeah. it's a it's a really cool little section. We'll get to it in just a little bit. Um, but the beginning of chapter 11 will open up with a little bit of a repeat of what happened in chapter 10, but we learned why. There was a really valuable lesson um, that Peter learned and he's going to take and share with some of the other people in Jerusalem um, that we learned about back in chapter 10 with Cornelius, the Gentile man and his household. So right. um, we'll get to pick up on that today. Because mm-hmm. Peter went through a pretty major change in Acts 10 mm-hmm. as far as his own mindset, his own conscience had to be adjusted and he did something that he normally would have never done. And the people in Jerusalem, who ha- were where Peter was at, who are where Peter was at, are going to have to make the same adjustment. So Peter's going to say, okay, guys, let me, let me, let me play it back for you. And uh, that's where we pick up in um, Acts chapter 11. Yeah, so let's go ahead and read that. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible, reading Acts 11, verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it, And was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth, and the wild beasts, and the crawling creatures, and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, there were men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house, and saying, Send to Joppa, and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down, and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. 
So here we have Peter get back down to Judea, get down to Jerusalem. And uh, they've got a problem with Peter, don't they? Yeah. And I mean, the first thing that they say in verse 3 is, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Again, when Peter crossed that threshold of Cornelius' house back in um, verse Acts uh, 10, verse 27, as he talked to them, uh, or no, I guess it would have been verse 25, uh, when Peter entered, you know, Cornelius, they fall down and worship him. He's like, no, no, stand up. Um, but uh, he would not have done that normally. He would not have gone in to a Gentile's house and uh, after all of the signs that God has given him, and he's going to recount those signs in this chapter, he, he does. He went into the Gentiles' house and ate with them and then baptized them without them being circumcised, without them keeping the law of Moses. And so um, Peter has to respond to this accusation. Like, why did you break the law and go in and eat with these uncircumcised Gentiles? What do you think you're doing, Peter? Because, of course, Peter is... Uh, prominent figure in the early church and this would have come across as a, a terrible influence terrible um i don't know what they would call it exactly but uh, he's uh he's lead, he's misleading people by doing this and so the way I, at least i think about it there's four uh signs that peter recounts here the first is the vision that he had three times um the sheet coming down with the animals the voice that says, kill and eat. No, I'm not going to do that. And then what God has made clean, do not call common. And then, verse 12, the Spirit told Peter to go with the men that came to his door. Yeah, so he sees something. He's told something. Right. Two pretty definitive things. Very specifically. Right. And in verse 13, he hears the report how Cornelius had seen an angel. So it's like, I'm not the only one getting visions here. Like Cornelius has received a vision. I received a vision. So that's the third point. And then the 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 kicker is verse 15. The Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And it's kind of interesting here that he says, he adds this note in uh, verse 16. And this We didn't get this detail in the last chapter. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he connects this with the baptism of the Holy Spirit um, that Jesus promised. That goes back to the beginning of the book of Acts. He said, go to Jerusalem, wait there. John baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And that's exactly what happened at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. Is They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began speaking in new languages. And that's exactly what happened to the Gentiles when Peter was still preaching to them. They start speaking new languages, and Peter's like, can anybody forbid water for these guys? Let's get them baptized. And uh, that's what happens. So Peter is like still putting all this together as he's presenting what happened to the brethren in Jerusalem. And so again, just like he said to the guys and at the end of Acts 10, who can forbid water for these guys? He's, he concludes his story by saying, if, verse 17, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? He's like, this is from God. Like, mm-hmm. This was not my idea. This was not my, my show. 
God was the one orchestrating this, and I was not going to stand in God's way. And I love the way that they respond to this in verse 18. When they hear this, I love how it says, they quieted down, (laughs) Uh, which implies, at least to me, that it was a little bit loud in there for a little bit. I mean, like, "Ah, I can't believe you did that, and maybe some of the bickering and arguing that's going on. But after they hear Peter's entire story, they hush. And in their quietness, then turns to loud because they're glorifying God, saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. That's beautiful. And we'll talk a little bit more extensively about this here. But this is a really good lesson for us to learn. We talked about it back in chapter 10. Peter was going against his conscience and what he learned uh, from God that day about needing to go into the house of a Gentile. And he had to adjust well, he was, his... He was, he was adjusting his conscience. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Well, that's what I'm trying to say. Yep. What, what he was learning was directly against his conscience. But when he sees that it's God's law, he adjusts his conscience. Mm-hmm. It's a whole nother thing for these people. These people didn't see what Peter saw. But once they hear about God's word and see the confirmation that this really was God, they then are also willing to adjust their conscience and glorify God for his salvation now to the Gentiles. And that's a big lesson for us. When we come to God's word, we will sometimes find things that might go against what we're used to hearing or against a tradition that we've always followed. And the question for us is, will we have the same type of response that these people did in verse 18 when we're corrected through God's word? Will we also glorify God and be thankful that we have received that correction? And will we adjust our conscience to it as well, just like Peter did, and now just like these people did too? Yeah. And what's crazy about this is you'd think, like, okay, this is like the end of this discussion in Jerusalem, but it's not. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are still going to be people who are teaching against what Peter experienced. And in Acts 15, we're going to see this later. It's kind of a preview of there's going to be this big debate in Jerusalem because there are still people going out from Jerusalem telling people like, no, Gentiles are not in until they become Jews. Even after all that Peter saw and, and reported to them, and this group gets it, but not everybody gets the memo uh, or believes, or I don't know why all they didn't get on, on board with this, but this is going to be an ongoing challenge for the early church is getting this message of God out and getting people to believe it and live by it because it's hard to turn around a train that's been going one way for a long time, not just for individuals, but for whole communities of people. And again, we have to be willing when we see something from God's word to stand on it ourselves, but then to try to help the people around us, the Christians around us to see, no, like I realize maybe we've been doing something different for a long time, but like, we all need to do what's right on this. And there was going to be, I mean, eventually Paul would say in Galatians, like, People who are still sticking to this old way are following a different gospel. Like this is not following what's right. You're, if you're forcing the Gentiles to be Jews, you are. You're, this is this is sinful. This is wrong. Uh, this is another gospel. Let him be accursed. So this is not the last time that we'll read about this in the New Testament. But um, powerful lessons here, and this really sets the stage for the next section uh, here, which is going to be kind of a. a the first Jew-Gentile church. Um, So let's read um, Acts 11 and pick up in verse 19. Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen 
traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. All right, so this is gets into a really cool section, but it all it automatically kind of provokes our memory back to what happened in chapter 8, um, because it tells us that those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, they make their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and to Antioch, speaking the word to only Jews. So that, that refers back to chapter 8 and verses 1 through 4, when actually Saul, of all people, uh, who comes up in this chapter, um, Saul, of course, started that persecution where it scattered the saints in Jerusalem all over the place. Um, but chapter 8, verse 4 of the book of Acts says, therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is kind of picking up on that, um, the fact that these people go out teaching. But verse 19 highlights the fact that they're only speaking to the Jews, which to their knowledge, that's all they know to really do. Um, but we learn in just a second that they now know to go much further than just the Jews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is an interesting thing here. So it's going to say in verse 19 that they're speaking the word to no one except Jews. But then in verse 20, it's saying there's the other these other men who come to Antioch and they speak to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And this was a word that's used, I think, like three times in the book of Acts. And it can refer to Greek-speaking Jews, or it can refer to Greek-speaking non-Jews, depending on the context. Back in Acts chapter 6, this was the word that was used to talk about like the widows mm-hmm. who were clearly... This, the whole Christian community was Jewish at that point. And so you had the, the Hebrews and the Hellenists. So that was like the Greek-speaking Jewish people in chapter 6. Same word here, but it's really clear from verse 19 that like initially they were only speaking to Jews. And now, by contrast, they're speaking to the Hellenists also. That can't be a subset of the Jews because I was like, well, they're no longer just speaking to Jews. They're speaking to more Jews. (laughs) No, this is... Non-Jews. A contrast. These are Gentiles. Sure. And for what it's worth, the New American Standard says they were speaking to the Greeks also there in verse 20. NIV does similar. Um, and so if you ever run across like that in your Bible, um, what Stephen just said can be helpful to know. Yeah. So this is really huge that up to this point, I mean, I'm assuming that the church there in Caesarea, where Cornelius was converted, that they started worshiping together. We don't have 
information about that. But this is the first record we have of a an, an all-Jewish group that these men come in from Cyprus and Cyrene, and they come to Antioch, and they're like, hey, like, have you heard what happened with Peter? Like, you heard what happened in Caesarea? Like, let's reach out to the Gentiles with this. Like, let's get all the nations and bring them in. And, and, and they start to do that, and they do a really effective work here. But this would have been, again, hard for this to them to really branch out and to start this Jew Gentile work together. You know what's crazy to me, Stephen? And it's not crazy, it makes sense. When they go to the Greeks at the end of verse 20, what are they preaching? They're preaching the Lord Jesus. It's the same message. <laughs> I mean, Peter, yes, he has some uncomfortable things he has to do whenever he goes into the house of the Cornelius. But at the end of the day, what's he doing? He's telling them about Jesus. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, that's who you need to hear about. And I love that you see that switch almost in their minds where they're like, hey, this same message, we can take it to the Gentiles too. Yeah. Let's, why and don't now, we do and that? And now we don't have to tell them to become Jews. Right. Like that's become clear that like we're not preaching conversion to Judaism. We're preaching Jesus and only Jesus. Yes. And that's a beautiful, beautiful message. And that's a huge, uh, I think, lesson for myself that when I go to take the gospel to somebody, who am I preaching? I'm preaching Jesus. That's who I'm there to talk to them about. That's right. And that's the focus these early disciples put. And just one of the messages in this section is the the cultural and ethnic diversity of the Christians. That in the church at Antioch in particular, we're going to see a diversity among the brethren there that reflects the gospel. Is that the gospel is not just for people of one nation or of one background, but the gospel is a message that transcends cultural and ethnic boundaries and is meant to bring in a multitude of people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And you see this like in the book of Revelation with John's vision. And one of the things that he sees at different times in the book is this great multitude that no one can number, people from every nation and tribe and tongue worshiping before the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb. And that, that is what Christianity is supposed to be. And in the first century, it was the Jew-Gentile debate. But throughout the history of Christianity, it's been a lot of different debates at a lot of different times. Like, who is Christianity for? Is it for this group or that group? Like, how should our churches look? And you can't read the book of Acts and come away thinking, yeah, like, we should just divide up into, like, our ethnic groups and let our churches be, like, separate and all this. It's like, no. Like... The church at Antioch is a great example of the power that the gospel has when we are preaching the Lord Jesus to bring people together who have historically been separated. That the gospel tears down walls of division and brings people together in Christ. And this will be a big theme in the letters of Paul. Ephesians 2 talks about he's tearing down the wall of separation. He does Colossians. Um, Romans, uh, so many powerful letters that Paul writes that just meditate on this idea of the unity that all nations are to have through Jesus. And it's something the Old Testament talked about. Mm -hmm. um, very often it would talk about all nations coming together uh, in Micah talking about all coming to the Mount of the Lord, mm -hmm. uh, which is a really beautiful section of scripture. But this is something that's always been God's will and always been God's plan. And it's being fulfilled in Acts 11. And let me tell you, it's being fulfilled today as well. That's right. Um, and that's that's the Lord Jesus' plan. Yeah. Um, and as a result of this, we know that this is this is God's will. Verse twenty-one, the hand of the Lord was with them. 
and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. God, the hand of Jesus was with them as they were doing this. And um, the result is a large number of people turning and obeying the gospel um, and, and following after Jesus and his teachings. Yeah. And again, this is showing God's approval of the Gentiles, like over right. and over. I mean, he started with the baptism of the Holy Spirit being given to Cornelius and his household. was like, God approves of this. And Peter's like, I can't stand in God's way. And now as the Christians in Antioch are reaching out to the Gentiles, the Lord was with them and he's blessing their work. Uh, the Lord is just all over this. And I love uh, what it says about Barnabas here, that uh, things are going well in Antioch. Um, and then with the Christians in Jerusalem hear about it, and again, People who've gotten the memo are like, yeah, this is great. Like, we've got this encourager here, son of encouragement. Let's send him up there to encourage the the work going on. Let me say about that. The church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch, it wasn't a competition. That's right. They weren't competing. Oh, no, you know, Antioch's doing well. They're getting bigger than us. No. In fact, what it really was is, hey, the church in Antioch is doing well. What can we do to help them? Mm-hmm. Um, they've got a lot of work going on. How about we send them one of our workers so that they can handle the workload? Uh, so I think it's really cool to kind of see that interaction back and forth between these two churches as they're working in God's kingdom. Yes. And you got to love Barnabas. Uh, he, when he came, it's verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God. That's just great to just think about that. Uh, maybe it was the uh, diversity of the group they're like, oh, you got Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. That's God's grace right there. Maybe it was just the, the way that they're growing and increasing. Maybe it was the way they were treating each other. All of it together, it says he came and he saw the grace of God. And notice it doesn't say that he came and saw the men of Cyprus and Cyrene working really hard. And so he was just impressed at their hard work ethic and what they did. No, it's the grace of God that was yeah. working through those men. That's the way it works. That's right. And so he's glad he exhorts them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I mean, I would have loved to have heard one of Barnabas's sermons. Like, that would have been really cool. You can definitely, uh, the New American Standard says that he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart. So I think it's kind of cool because that's like his namesake, right? Uh, He's the son of encouragement. And so I think it's cool that it's translated that way. Um, But he's going to remain true. Uh, excuse me, he's going to remain true to the Lord, but he's encouraging them to remain true to the Lord um, in what they're doing. And I just think this is cool because like, you've got lessons that are pretty basic about Jesus and what you need to do to follow him. And then you've got lessons that Barnabas gives. It's like, hey, keep it up. Keep up the good work. Stay true to the Lord. And Luke adds a little bit of a detail for us on who Barnabas is as a person. He tells us that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And um, considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And I think that's because by God's grace and through God and through Barnabas, he's teaching considerable numbers and encouraging people. And Barnabas doesn't just keep it to himself. Uh, This is just so cool to me that in verse 25, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And again, it's not like you just like, text him and be like hey man like you should come down to Antioch I mean this would have been a, a journey now Tarsus isn't super far away from Antioch it's kind of like just around the bend of the Mediterranean there but still like Barnabas sees the good work that's going on just like Jerusalem sent him to Antioch he's like you know who would be great for the work here I'm gonna go find Saul because again he had to flee from Jerusalem so right. last time we saw him and they sent him away all the way back to his hometown, Tarsus. And we don't know about the work he was doing there. Certainly, he would have been working to convert people back in his hometown. 
But now he brings him around to Antioch. And this is going to be kind of a fateful decision that Barnabas makes to go and get Saul because Saul's going to spend a lot of time in Antioch. And this is going to become like the home base for the missionary journeys. And like, it's just really cool to see how this decision to go and get Saul will factor into the rest of the book of Acts. And, and as we work through the book of Acts, we're going to see a couple different differences between Barnabas and Saul, and yet they work together really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, it, it attests to how busy the work in Antioch was. The fact that Barnabas had to leave to go get help mm-hmm. uh, shows just how, how busy the work here really was. Um, and so when they get there, uh, once he finds Saul and brings him back to Antioch, it says that they met for an entire year with the church taught considerable numbers and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Okay. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Is, have we heard that word Christian before? Yeah. This like is the first time. Yeah. This word is pretty used widely throughout the nation, but like it's notable that like all the way through like the gospel of Mark and all the way through the book of Acts, this is the first time we've heard this word Christian. What do you mm-hmm. think about that? Yeah, there's there's some, uh, we, we don't know how the term was brought up, but of course, if you look at the word Christian, you're being called by the name of Christ. And it's possible that this started out as a derogatory term, mm-hmm. um, that the people around them are like, oh, there, there's those Christ followers, there's those Christians, and that it was used as a, uh, a way of beating them down. And they're like, we're going to suffer for the name of Jesus. We're, we're going to wear that name with pride. We're going to be called Christians. We're going to own that. And they, so they take it and they run with it. And we'll see it come up a couple other times. Now, it's possible that they uh, were called Christians just as kind of a neutral thing. They're like, they're like oh, like, yeah, those are the people who follow Christ. Like They're the Christians. And that name just kind of like started to be used. And they were like, yeah, like let's use that. Now, it is also possible that they were like, hey, guys, like we should like really start to wear the name of Jesus. So like, let's be called Christians. Like we are the followers of the Messiah or the followers of Christ, Jesus the Christ. And so they, they intentionally took it upon themselves. So whether it was like from the enemies, whether it was from them, it doesn't really matter. However it came about, this is where the name Christian takes root. Like this is where it's in this church where God's grace is being seen and the nations are coming together that, all right, this is where Christ's name is being worn by these disciples. That's where they were first called Christians. And I love just how simple it is. Like there's nothing complicated about this. What are they? They're Christians, people who follow Christ. Oh, cool. Uh, Where are they located? Um, they were called Christians in Antioch, so they're in Antioch. It's like as simple as that. Um, there's no like underlying denominational theme or anything like that. It's just, this is what we are. This is a description of who we are, and it's a descriptor of where we are meeting at and where we work at. Um, and it's that's as simple as the name needs to be. Um, and we'll see a couple other names for the Lord's people in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 1 talks about the church of God, uh, Romans 16, 16 talks about the, the church of Christ, churches of Christ greet you. Um, and, and again, these are not names per se, as much as they are descriptors of who God's people are in that locality. Um, but this word Christian is actually used in a couple different places. Uh, one of them is actually in the book of Acts. Yeah, I was just looking for this. Uh, do you have the reference? Handy? Yeah, it's Acts chapter 26. And this is when Paul is talking to Agrippa in verse 28. 
um, and, well, back up to verse uh, 27 when Paul is talking to him. And uh, Paul talks to King Agrippa there and says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. And Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. At that point, if the king knows the name Christian, he knows what that following is about. Um, so that's that goes to show just how widely known I think the Christians were at that point and as far as the name Christian goes. Mm-hmm. But the other time is in 1 Peter 4. Yeah, 1 Peter 4 is the, the other one. Again, these are the only three times the word Christian is used in the Bible. Um, 1 Peter 4 in verse 16, in the middle of this discussion on suffering, Peter writes, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. I think that's a beautiful thought that, listen, if you're going to suffer as a Christian, if you're going to suffer wearing Christ's name, don't be ashamed of that. They persecuted your Lord, and if they persecute you, you glorify God in the name of Christ. Wear the name Christian and suffer for him. And there are so many other ways people suffer. In the verse right before that, in verse 15, Peter will say, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. You know, if, if you get arrested for those things, you should be ashamed mm-hmm. for what you've done. But if you're arrested and you get in trouble because you're a Christian, Peter's saying, don't be ashamed of that. Mm-hmm. You're a follower of God. You're a follower of Jesus Christ. You are a Christian. You wear that name, I say proudly in a way, <laughs> right. that, that I mean in a good way. Um, and so that's that's really cool to see those three verses through Scripture. They're very kind of broad, too, when you think about mm-hmm. that. Uh, just very diverse in their, the way that they're used. Yeah, because the word disciple is the usual word for a follower right. of Jesus. That'll be used all throughout the, the Gospels, the book of Acts. But now Christian has become really the more predominant word today to describe people who wear Jesus' name. Yeah, and that word disciple is right there in that verse in Acts eleven twenty six. The mm-hmm. disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, which mm-hmm. is really cool to kind of see those words right next to each other. Yeah. So you've got a group here that is reaching out across, uh, you know, ethnic boundaries. You've got people who are rejoicing to see the grace of God. You've got people who are very active in evangelism. And at the end, we're going to see that this is a group that is generous with their financial resources. Um, There are prophets who come from Jerusalem to Antioch. And Agabus is the one who says, listen, there's a famine coming. Uh, And Luke tells us, hey, this is in the days of Claudius. And so the disciples are like, okay, we've got, we're going to have needy brethren, um, especially in Jerusalem. Again, Jerusalem is still the place where there are like thousands of Christians, and there's going to be a lot of needy Christians there. And so they each determine according to their ability. This is a free will offering. It's not like a set amount, but as much as God has blessed them, they determine according to their ability to send relief to the brothers in Judea. And also, just a side note here, it's interesting that they send it to the elders in Jerusalem. This is the very first mention of elders in the Bible, or at least in the New Testament. And uh, this is going to be a description of the local church leadership in Jerusalem. We'll see some more things about elders in a few chapters. But um, Barnabas and Saul team up and they're like, hey, like, let's let's do this. So they, they collect... Um, the resources from Antioch and they take it down to the elders in the church at Jerusalem. And this is local autonomous leadership. Yeah. I, I really love this kind of biblical pattern, if you will, of Barnabas and Saul taking it to the elders. Um, Barnabas 
from everything we know. Trustworthy guy, honest, secure, you know, that type of thing, trustworthy. And same could be said of Saul, but they're doing it together. Everything's above board that way. You got two guys who are taking what is likely a pretty large sum of money. Um, and also there's just general rules about protection and stuff. This is going to be a dangerous travel uh, to take all these resources down to Jerusalem. Um, but they also, when they get these resources down there, they give it to the elders. And the elders will then distribute it as they see need to the, to the local group. Um, and this is God's will. And it's a very... I think wise plan as well. I think it makes sense. Um, so I, I'm very thankful that we have this pattern here. And uh, I would encourage anyone who's a part of a local church to follow the same pattern as well. Um, and they're giving to other churches in a time of crisis or need. This is the pattern and the way to follow. Yeah. I'll just say one other thing about the church in Antioch, because this is really pretty much all we have about them except for um, the beginning of Acts 13. So like Acts 12, we'll talk about this next week, Lord willing. Um, We'll talk about, like, apparently something that happened. Barnabas and Saul come with the collection to Jerusalem. And then during this time, you know, James is killed. Peter is almost killed. He's delivered. And at the end of Acts 12, Barnabas and Saul are going to return to Antioch, bring John Mark with them. And Acts 13, 1 through 3, is going to tell us a little bit more about the church at Antioch. Just that they had a, a fully equipped church with prophets and teachers. And um, that's when the Holy Spirit is going to call Barnabas and Saul off to these journeys that they're going to take to take the gospel further to the Gentiles, not just there in Antioch, but across the known world. And so it's a beautiful thing to see that the church in Antioch is willing to share the resources, including the teachers and the workers in the gospel that they have there, just as Jerusalem has shared with them and the Lord has blessed them. They're willing to share those teachers with the Christians to be in, in the world. So it's just a beautiful thing. I feel like the church in Antioch is such a great study to just see what does God expect a body of his people to look like in the New Testament. It's just one of the best examples that I know. If you're like doing a study of like different churches in the New Testament, Antioch may be at like the top of my list at least is like, this is what a mature body of Jesus's people is supposed to look like is just look at the different examples here. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, amen. Well, Lord willing, next week uh, we'll get to talk more about Peter and uh, some of the stuff that he's going to be doing. We're going to unfortunately see him arrested, and we'll talk more about that, Lord willing, next week. And um, we'll even talk more about some of the kings of the land and what they were up to at the time as well. Yeah. If you guys are enjoying what you're hearing on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, review, um, if you're interested in online Bible studies, uh, please reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. If you have questions or comments, uh, 717-585-0949. You can t- uh, call or text uh, capitalcitychristians at gmail.com. If you prefer email or check us out online at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.